Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. This is just a little fun mini-sode that I thought would be helpful to give you a breakdown of how aristocratic titles actually worked in Victorian times. This is just to give some background for upcoming shows. Unusually, this is a topic where, even though I've researched it, I'm not sure I entirely understand it, but you'll see why as we go through. And I'd like to think I'm slightly less baffled than I was before, at least. There were lots of titles in the Victorian era that are often thrown around, and these things can seem really confusing sometimes. That's because they are. Really, the whole system is very messy. If you play computer games, you might be familiar with sort of difficulty levels, like Squire, Knight, Earl and Duke. Well, in a way, some of the titles were levelled like this. But that really oversimplifies things too much. Instead, this episode is like the moment Harry Potter is introduced to the wizarding world with its crazy customs and rules. If you know much about British history, you can see where J.K. Rowling got a lot of her inspirations. Things like houses at Hogwarts are actually common practice at a lot of British schools. I was in Grenville House, incidentally. So here is a hierarchy of the titles of the aristocracy in Britain, for both genders, just to get started. In descending order, a duke or a duchess, a marquis or marchioness, an earl or a countess, a viscount or a viscountess, a baron or a baroness. Please remember that the title is not the same as the person's name or necessarily the way they were addressed. Think of it like joining the army. Your title is Major. Your name at birth is Tom Aldrin and you are addressed as Sir by the enlisted men. But as Major Aldrin by the regimental colonel when he's feeling formal or Tom when he's chatting in the mess. Your friends would of course call you David Bowie because they know you closely, have no respect for rank and would probably hum the tune Starman when it's your round. You know from TV that the Duke was the best title to have, right? But why? Why did a Duke outrank an Earl? What about a Prince who was also an Earl? Did they outrank the Duke? That's before we get to the Duchess. Did she outrank a man, even in an age where women were treated as second-class citizens? Where did an Archbishop sit? What about an Irish Duke? Did they outrank a Scottish Earl, who was also a clan chief? These questions matter to the Victorians. Not least because Victorian etiquette was insanely complex. 
and what title people held affected even small things, like who was allowed to walk into a dining room first to eat. The Victorians expected people to defer to other people in the order of their social rank. Imagine a fictional Victorian hostess who heard that the Duke of Portland, the Viscount Palmerston, the Marquess of Lawn were coming to dinner. This would have sent the horrified hostess rushing to the Brett's or other guides of etiquette. Did the Duke take precedence over the Viscount? In the hierarchy of titles I read out, that looks easy. Yes. But the poor hostess had to bear in mind that Viscount Palmerston was Prime Minister and that the Marquis of Lorne was the courtesy title of the Ninth Duke of Argyle, who was a former Governor-General of Canada, a clan chief of the clan Campbell, and married Queen Victoria's daughter, Princess Louise. Luckily, for our fictitious hostess, the dates for these people don't quite work out, so she'd never have had this particular problem. Of course, if she had similar problems with real people, it meant she was moving in the highest circles of Victorian society anyway. There were a boatload of etiquette guides, including famous guides to the aristocracy, like de Brett's or Burke's Guide to the Peerage, first published in 1826. You can still visit both those websites today and subscribe to Burke's Guide. They cover everything, from the title holders in York to the entire history of the US presidency. They are, of course, eye-wateringly expensive. Also, for you Downton Abbey fans, it's why the Earl of Grantham is Lord Grantham, but his wife is a countess, because earls were male titles and countess was the female equivalent. So you can see from these examples, titles could be confusing and courtesy titles were used on top. Plus, there was nothing to stop someone holding more than one title. As a bonus, there were also the baronets and knights who were in an entirely separate system and who sat outside the formal peerage structure. Now, peerage is what we call the aristocracy above a certain rank. The key was that title was about rank, but it was also about social politeness. It was a mark of politeness to be properly deferential. And that showed good breeding and manners for a gentleman or a lady. Let's start off with the structure first. If you were a Victorian you knew your station in the world and your class. You made damn sure everyone else knew it and that everyone else acted correctly according to their station and yours. If you were in the aristocracy, you would absolutely be superior and condescending about it to the lower orders, but not overly so. It would be a mark of poor breeding 
if you were. And of course, amongst your fellow aristocrats, good manners required you to be confident in your position without being arrogant. If you were in the middle class, you made sure other people knew that you were respectable and solid. If you were in the working class, you took pride in your job and status. And if you were amongst the destitute and poor, life hammered home your station to you every day. What's more, in the run-up to the 1830s, a lot more people had been added to the nobility. This increase in numbers meant more nobles demanded to be moved up the scale of the nobility and became much more concerned about rank. At the top of the social ranking system was the reigning monarch. She exercised the official power of the crown and her office was referred to the crown or the queen by people acting on her behalf. There was no debate about this social stationing. As I've mentioned in previous shows on Victoria, the Victorians considered the crown as the top social rank. To suggest otherwise was dangerous radicalism, or even revolutionary republicanism. She was addressed as Your Majesty by everyone. Aristocrats would be allowed to switch to a less formal mom. Once the first formality was done, the exception was the man holding the social rank below Queen. Just beneath Victoria was theoretically Albert, the Prince Consort. He was not granted the title of King, since the Victorians expected kings to outrank queens, and no one was going to give a German prince the English throne at this point. In practice, Albert hated to defer to anyone, which is understandable given his intellectual gifts, and he had to fight a long-running battle with the British establishment to get respect. He would eventually get the formal title of Prince Consort, and was regarded by some politicians and many others as effectively the king in all but name. He referred to Victoria as either Your Majesty, Queen Victoria, Victoria, or Beloved Wife, or various other endearments. The relationship was passionate, loving, sometimes stormy, but never as stylized as some older court systems like the Habsburgs or the Chinese imperial dynasties. Beneath the Queen and the Prince Consort were the Dukes. These were typically royal Dukes, but you also got regular Dukes, if I can put it that way. A Duke was a title not automatically connected to territory. In practice, most Dukes did actually have territory, but a Dukedom didn't automatically come with the title of the Duke. There is one particular ducal title that does come with the duchy, that is, the Duchy of Lancaster. It is the richest dukedom in the kingdom, and to make things even more messy, 
the title is held by the monarch. So Queen Elizabeth II is also the Duke of Lancaster. And this has been a crown title since Henry V in the 1400s. It brings colossal wealth with it. Naturally, in the traditional British way, strange quirks have grown up around it. British Army regiments from Lancaster traditionally didn't just say the Queen while drinking a loyal toast in the mess hall. They sometimes toasted the Queen, the Duke, who were the same person. Actually, this is pretty important, as well as an interesting bit of pub quiz trivia. The Crown of England, and whoever is wearing it, gets the money from the civil list, which is basically money from the government to run the various bits of the monarchy. They also get the income from the estates owned by the Crown. Well, that's fine, but where does it leave them as a person? I mean, the Crown can spend £10 of public money to fix a leaky palace roof, but... Can Queen Lizzie spend that money on her own personal TV and iPod? Not really. She can't go and get an evening job pulling pints at the dog and duck either. In most countries, the head of state is a job with a salary, but a monarch can't have a salary. They have to have an income from somewhere. And this is where the money from the duchy comes in. All that wealth is separate from the income to the crown. It is designed to give the monarch a form of independence. It is currently valued at 534 million in assets that are held in a perpetual tax-free trust and it brings in an income of 20 million a year. It is made up of a fair few castles a massive amount of estates, farmland, fisheries, hotels, health clubs, pubs and care homes, meaning it is getting more profitable over time. Since Queen Lizzie already has a number of public residences, this is essentially a £20 a year that she doesn't have to spend on the rent or the mortgage. Although it is tax-free, she voluntarily pays taxes on it anyway. This duchy is one of the foundation stones of the power of the British monarchy. Think of it like letting someone own California and giving them a slice of every buck of profit someone in the state makes on everything. Suddenly, that makes the monarch incredibly powerful compared to all the levels of title below. I suppose you are wondering how on God's earth previous kings managed to go bankrupt if they had access to this. Well, the answer is that they weren't making as much profit from the duchy as the Windsors do today. And some of them spent sums of money that defy easy description. Remember when we discussed the Prince Regent spending nearly the cost of a Royal Naval first-rate ship? Victoria actually came to the throne with serious money worries 
And luckily, she wasn't that overindulgent. And she and Albert were actually pretty good financial planners. Then, as the wealth of empire flowed into Britain, and the Queen was showered with gifts, or heaped with loot, like the Koh i depending on your point of view, she became even richer. The crown is also the head of the Church of England, as we've discussed, and by the end of her reign, Victoria was also formally recognised as the Empress of India. So her full final titles were Her Majesty Victoria, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, Queen, Defender of the Faith, Empress of India, Founder and Sovereign of the Royal Order of the Star of India, Founder and Sovereign of the Royal Order of Victoria and Albert, Founder and Sovereign of the Order of the Crown of India, Founder and Sovereign of the Distinguished Service Order, Founder and Sovereign of the Royal Victorian Order. Fortunately, people didn't have to say that every time they spoke to her. No one else came to that level on the social scale. There was nothing that outranked Queen. Well, until the heart-stopping moment, her daughter married the heir to the German Empire and would in the fullness of time become an empress. In no world was Queen Victoria going to let her daughter outrank her. So she pressed Parliament to have herself styled Empress of India, which is why it got tacked on there. If you want to know why the British monarch hadn't called themselves an emperor or an empress before, well, I've no solid idea. There are lots of theories. The British Empire had existed in some form or another for centuries, but it might well be that monarchs didn't feel they had the direct level of control or integration to be an emperor. Or maybe the lands they ruled overseas didn't seem that real, apart from the sugar and tobacco they sent, and the money from the slave trade. Also, in some cases they were fully aware the negative connotation taking the title might bring. After all, not many of the Irish would have been particularly pleased to have an English or Scottish king declare themselves an emperor of Ireland. And if you want to know more, though, about the rise of the British Empire in general, have a listen to Sam on the Pax Britannica podcast, which will cover the big sweeps of empire from its foundation. It's a really great show. Right, now that we've done the crown, let's make things a bit more complicated. The royal princes almost automatically made dukes, but you could also have dukes who were non-royal. These ducal titles were typically held by hereditary right and passed down the family line. If no living relatives were alive to claim the title, when the last duke or duchess died, the title became dormant or extinct. This is why families became obsessed with children and marriages. There is a desperate game to keep the title alive and within the direct family line. So, a royal duke outranked a non-royal duke in most cases. 
although in practice a very minor royal cousin with a duke as a title, would have been expected to be fairly deferential to Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington, at the height of his post-Waterloo fame. Socially, dukes were formally addressed as Your Grace, although in extended conversation, that would switch to Lord so-and-so. It would look weird to spend a whole dinner party talking to your uncle you had known since childhood and calling him Your Grace. The Victorians expected deference, not some kind of slavish obsession to hierarchy in the same way that perhaps the ornate Byzantine court did. I won't go into social etiquette here in great depth, but it is a really fascinating topic. Even amongst the non-royal dukes, all were not equal. Titles were also ranked by age. The older the title, the higher it was in the ranking of the peerages. Oddly, a lot of British titles weren't actually that old. Families went extinct or fell from the nobility. These titles got lost. Sometimes they were revived for later use by new royal favourites or to reward military achievements. In the famous case of the Earldom of Mar, the title was subject to bitter legal disputes. It claims to be the oldest extant title in Europe. In the 1870s, there was a colossal legal war over that title. Claims and rebuttals flew all over the place. A new earl was created. Parliament had to get involved. History was accidentally rewritten. English and Scottish relations were strained. And the confused upshot is that there are actually now two legal earldoms called the Earldoms of Mar, both with wholly separate families holding them. I will do a minisode on that one at some point, I'm sure. The basic rule is that the older the title, the more important the title holder became. The dukes were unequal in another way. In the rules of the peerage, which is what we call the nobility, an English title outranked an equal Scottish title, and both outranked an Irish title. This is why Sir John Conroy kept angling for an Irish title. It would have given him immense power, but was much more realistically achievable than asking for an English one. Being a penniless duke was perfectly possible, but in practice most had large estates and immense investments in mills, trades, shipping and other cash cows. This also meant dukes were rich beyond the dreams of most people. Add into that the fact they could automatically sit in the House of Lords as a lord by hereditary right. Dukes therefore typically operated with immense wealth and political power. I'm sorry to tell you period drama fans, but that means they rarely came into contact with the common people never mind fell in love with them. For the most part, contact was limited to servants, the professional middle classes providing some kind of service 
typically banking or law, and of course, staff at the establishments they visited. That would probably include the theatre, London clubs, whatever local balls were held at their various countries' states of their friends, plus any political or legal events they were involved in, if they had, say, decided to go into politics or law. They would certainly not go around collecting their own rents. They would, perhaps, be on close terms with specialist horse dealers, since many aristocrats prided themselves on their horsemanship. They might also sponsor prize fighters, and even box themselves. This was a really interesting relationship. Gambling on the horse races, or the prize ring, was a favourite of many dukes. Fortunes could be won or lost on the turf. Bets of up to £10,000 were not unknown. When you consider what we've covered of working class poverty and the destitute classes, you can see that the dukes would seem to move in another world. Below the dukes were the marquess, then the earls, then the viscounts, and then the barons. Finally, there were the baronets and knights, who were outside the peerage of nobility, and not entitled to a seat in the House of Lords, but they were most certainly regarded as upper-class gentlemen. Some ambitious people could dream of a knighthood at least, especially under Queen Victoria, who was particularly fond of knighting gallant officers. I suspect it appealed to the young girl inside her, who still adored the novels of Sir Walter Scott and Chivalry. But for the super-ambitious, for those who managed to combine luck, intelligence, being in the right place at the right time, and ruthlessness, it was possible to rise from almost nothing into the very heights of the aristocracy. The controversial Clive of India went to carve out a fortune in India in the 1700s and came back so rich and powerful that he had to be admitted to the nobility. Clive had started out as a young boy in the middle-class family on a small estate in Shropshire, but ended as Baron Clive of Plassey and County Clare. This was an Irish title and allowed him to sit in the House of Lords. He was also a Knight Commander of the Order of the Bath and Lord Lieutenant of Shropshire. He was a well-known figure and would have provided a template for ambitious imperial officers. If a middle-class boy from the countryside could do it, well, why not me? Many Victorians might have thought. Of course, as you know, there were other ways into the aristocracy. Titles could be bought, and that was quite illegal, but there were some prime ministers who were pretty shameless about selling titles to rich allies. If a wealthy industrialist didn't fancy that, well, perhaps a son or daughter could be married to an aristocratic family they were so hard up they were desperate. Of course, this was in some ways seen as shameful. The aristocrats were seen as marrying beneath themselves. But if the father had run up a colossal gambling debt, 
or lost a fortune on railway shares, it could be presented as a noble son making a sacrifice for the restoration of the family. The period between 1750 and 1830 saw a huge increase in the number of peers. The House of Lords expanded from 199 to 358 and included a rush of Irish and Scottish landowners. After 1801, it focused less on landowning as a qualification and drew more from the ranks of the judiciary, diplomats, military officers and wealthy businessmen with the right connections. Beneath the Dukes were the Marquess. This hereditary title had been introduced by Richard II and was well established, but not very common. Still, you'll see it on various pubs around the country. Next in rank were the Earls, and this hereditary title has its root in the old Anglo-Saxon rank of Eldorman. If you've been listening to the excellent British History podcast or the History of England podcast, you'll have heard it before. Interestingly, in Scotland the title could pass down to females in some circumstances. There were quite a lot of Scottish earls, and they played prominent roles in the Victorian era. You might, for instance, have heard of James Bruce, 8th Earl of Elgin, and the 12th Earl of Kincaid. Yes, that's right, he had two of them. His father was the man who saved the Elgin marbles, or stole them, depending on your point of view of events, but James Bruce was even more infamous for his role in the Second Opium War, and his decision to burn the priceless national treasure of China, the Summer Palace. He has towns in Ontario named after him, following his time as Governor-General there, as well as eventually becoming Viceroy of India. So when I say having title brought immense power, you can see what I mean. James Bruce was recognised as being very talented. He was actually made a baron to allow him to be a peer of the realm early, rather than having to wait for his father to die. He also got a knighthood in England, and a Scottish knighthood too. That meant when he died, he was Sir James Bruce, 8th Earl of Elgin and 12th Earl of Kincaid, KT, GCB, KSI, PC. Not that people would have said that mouthful out loud too often. Still, you can see the mix of titles, orders, rewards and ranks all thrown together. Viscount, as a courtesy title, could be used by the heir of an earl or a marquess. The apparent heir of a viscount would be referred to as a discount, which, God, I love and I truly wish there had been a discount somewhere using the name Sandwich, but sadly I've never found him in the sources. Viscounts, like dukes, were always the viscount of somewhere, so Earl of Pembroke, of Purbeck, say, but the Viscounts always dropped the of bit 
which is confusing. That means the Earl's son would be the Viscount Purbeck, and of course, it was still an official title, as dear Lord M would chuckle. We've not really met him, and this isn't the place, but at the very least you should know he was actually called the Right Honourable, the Lord William Lamb, 2nd Viscount Melbourne, of Kilmore in County Cavan, also in the Peerage of Ireland, PC, PCI, and FRS. He would have been referred to by those who knew him as Lord William, and his wife as Lady. But to us Victoria fans, he will always be dear Lord M. Beneath the Viscounts were the Barons. These were the lowest rank of the peerage, dating all the way back to nearly Norman times. And they were pretty common by aristocratic standards. There are currently 426 active titles. But that gives you an idea of just how rare the aristocracy actually were in Victorian England. Out of a population of millions, you were only talking maybe around a thousand or a thousand and a half people. And that's if you're fairly generous with your definition of aristocrat. Now you can see why it is so odd that so much historical fiction has dukes or the sons of dukes as the hero or love interest or even the villain. There were hardly any of them, and they all knew each other to a degree. It is slightly more believable if a character meets an earl in a military setting. Earls seem to be common in the highest ranks of the Admiralty or the Army, as naturally the establishment wanted the armed forces, commanded at senior level by what was called talent with title, rather than self-made men. After all, the aristocracy were the very definition of the state and establishment, so you would naturally want them in charge of the army that defends it. That said, the Royal Navy did have the odd admiral who started life as a common sailor, so a stellar rise was just sometimes possible. If Napoleon said, every soldier's knapsack carried a marshal's baton, the Royal Navy might retort that every man who handled a rope might one day handle a fleet. None of this meant that a person having a chat with a duke or a viscount called them your grace or your lordship all the time. Only the servants had to do that. Aristocrats were still part of the same select elite. It was polite conversation to say your grace or your lordship at the beginning of the conversation. But after that, it was proper form to switch to lord so-and-so. Well, unless you were the queen. Then you had a bit more latitude. Victoria could be a bit of a stickler for form, but she was known to unbend for those very close to her. What's left then? Oh yes, the baronets and the knights. The important point was that neither of these were part of the peerage, and having one of these titles didn't make them a lord or give them a vote in the House of Lords. The baronet was a hereditary knighthood, 
was passed down to the children. Some of the oldest of the baronets were highly respected titles. The knights were the lowest rung of the aristocracy, giving you the title of Sir for life and membership of whichever order of chivalry Queen V liked at the moment. Aiming for a knighthood was much more realistic, even for the middle classes. It did mean you could still be an MP in the House of Commons. You were still considered elevated well beyond the common masses. No longer addressed by your fellow professionals by your last name, but as Sir Thingy. A knight might be looked down on if he were considered from a low family, being mere trade. So, social expectations rose as the person rose in social class. Let me make up an example for you. The fictional Charles Gracewood goes to India in the Indian Civil Service. He does excellent work up-country and is given a better post. He is ambitious and intelligent and does amazing work keeping supplies flowing to a flying column. His next assignment as assistant resident to a hostile ruler results in a change of favour towards the British. He is promoted, but he has felt he is getting above himself. Before steps are taken to bring him back to earth, the event called the Indian Mutiny breaks out, and he distinguishes himself, defending a local settlement and the British population, as well as supplying intelligence to the British military. His prompt intervention in a neighbouring district keeps them from wavering to the enemy, and he is to be well rewarded afterwards. He is made a knight, and Alice's father is a well-known lawyer. He is regarded by just the thing for other families of similar level of knighthood, and accepted by the various members of the peerage. He could probably make a good marriage if he wanted, or aim to leverage his record into a political career as an MP. He will be addressed as Sir Charles by friends, or just Sir by his servants. Our next fictional character is John Barrows. He has made an absolute fortune in coal mining, then got involved with the Honourable East India Company. He has bought a fine house from a bankrupt baronet, including the entire library. He has made some significant donations to various important figures, including MPs. He has even paid to hush up a significant scandal that happened when he was visiting a Viscount's country estate. The Viscount's son and a young army officer was the rumour. He paid a hefty amount and used his connections to keep things very quiet for his hosts. They were extremely grateful for his political fixing. Naturally, a lot of people owe him a lot of favours. In fact, he has a dirty finger in every dirty pie going. He wants his daughter married well, so he decides to call those favours in. He will be a Viscount, he declares to his circle of political allies. They are horrified. He is a brute and a ruthless political fixer. He is well known to keep a mistress. What would the Queen say? 
All kinds of excuses are made. He nods, then calmly announces they are probably right. After all, it would be a lot of work. With all those new social obligations, and he has so much to do with drawing all of his funds from his current ventures and investing them in an American railway scheme. It will mean he needs to focus on that, and sadly he won't be able to see his friends and lend them support any more. He will try to tie up affairs properly and enjoy New York society. He's looking forward to answering their questions about the latest gossip and scandal in England. One of the group nearly shatters his brandy glass in horror. They rush immediately to change his mind. A Viscountcy is out of the question, at least in England, but perhaps an Irish title? Well, might be just the thing. After all, there are generous rents to be received from Ireland, a steady income. He nods. Baron of somewhere with plenty of rents will be just the thing. Of course, there will always be the hint of trade about him. He will never actually be as respected as Sir Charles would have been, even though Charles only got a knighthood. There were complex rules for writing to the aristocrats, made more complicated by the various courtesy titles. A child of an earl, as not the oldest, might still have a courtesy title and be called my lord in speech, but to be written to as the Honourable Mr. So-and-so since the courtesy title wasn't written. Of course, if his father and older brother died, then he shot up to an earldom without having to pass Viscount and collect £200. There are, of course, all kinds of crazy exceptions designed to drive podcasters like me mad. The head of the judiciary in the Isle of Jersey is a non-hereditary Viscount, since Jersey is in the Channel Islands and is a crown dependency, not part of the United Kingdom. It is a holdover from the times the English crown ruled the Duchy of Normandy. There was also the problem that the Court of Exchequer called its judges Baron as a legal title of office, and when Queen Victoria wanted to elevate Sir James Park to the Lords, she wanted to give him the title of Baron Wensleydale. And why not? Being the lord of a cracking piece of cheese sounds excellent. Unfortunately, Sir James was ill when his name was called, and so wasn't able to appear before the appointments committee that was going to turn him from a non-noble baron to a proper one. This set off a chain of events to see if Victoria did have the power to create life peers, as that hadn't been done by the Crown for so long that it was possible the powers had lapsed. Eventually, after an almighty waffle over nothing very much, Parliament declared, pompously, that the Queen could not create a life peer by letters patent. He could not be Baron Wensleydale of Wensleydale and sit in the House of Lords. That would be a monstrous abuse of power by the Queen. Instead, he would have to become Baron Wensleydale of Wilton, a hereditary peer who could sit in the House of Lords 
and pass the title down to his children, which he didn't have. The important thing was that the Queen couldn't just pack the House of Lords with life peers to suit her or the Prime Minister. That would be a terrible abuse of royal power. Instead, they had to pack it with hereditary peers, which was a time-honoured right of the Crown and clearly acceptable to all right-thinking people. So, Sir James Park went from being styled the Right Honourable James Park to being the Right Honourable the Lord Wensleydale PC. Jokes aside, this was a serious and important case. Victoria was trying to get Sir James Park into the House of Lords for a really good reason. The House of Lords, the time, was also the highest level of court and there were well-founded concerns that not enough lords had sufficient legal knowledge to perform the duties of the court. This attempt to create a life peer was to try to bring professional legal knowledge into a critical area. Eventually an Act of Parliament was introduced in 1876 and the first law lords, as they were known, could sit in the lords. Please don't confuse these lawyers elevated to the lords with lords who happen to have become lawyers. Oh, and the PC letters I've been mentioning after people's names in this show stand for Privy Council. That's the smaller group of professional advisors who give, we we'll call it direction and function for some of the monarch's less well-established powers. So often things like judicial appointments or things like that, that don't sit in Parliament itself. Honestly, if you sat down to write a constitution and orders of merit in a society with a blank piece of paper and came up with half of what the United Kingdom has, well, as Dickens would have said, you could assuredly rip it up and throw it in the bin. You would loudly exclaim that all the occupants of Bedlam could not have come up with a piece of stark raving folly such as the United Kingdom peerage and constitution, you would surely take to your bed for a week and ask for soothing tinctures for your fevered mind. Yet, terrible thought, this is indeed real. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'm not sure if it has made things any clearer, but at least you understand the mess. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, on the Facebook page or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care. And bye for now.